This is the EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics that you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. First up, we got talks guru Emily Austin on organophosphate poisoning. You're working a late night shift in the emergency department when you get a call overhead to recess. You look in and you see a young guy who's drowsy with vomit all over his shirt. He's dripping with sweat and appears to be breathing really quickly. Their paramedic that brought him in mentions to you that this guy told them he swallowed a pesticide that he brought back from his native country of Bangladesh about two hours ago. Your alarm bells start to go off. This guy is not looking good. His vital signs support your instinct. He's got a heart rate of about 40, and his blood pressure is around 90 over 60. Monitor is giving you a reading of an oxygen saturation of about 84%. Just before you go examine him, something tells you, "Mm, I should probably get all gowned up. So you don a mask, a face shield, a gown, and some gloves. As the nurse is applying oxygen, you listen to his lungs. There's crackles and wheezes all over. Just before leaving the room, you look in his pupils. They're pinpoint. If you're asking yourself, could this really be a case of an organophosphorus pesticide poisoning here in my ED in North America? Well, you would be right. These cases just aren't something that we see every day. But across the globe, there's over 200,000 cases of acute pesticide poisoning seen every year. And occasionally, these patients do present to us. Organophosphorus compounds are pesticides that work by inhibiting that acetylcholinesterase enzyme. Other compounds like carbamate pesticides or nerve agents like sarin, for example, inhibit this enzyme too. And the clinical picture of presentation is really almost indistinguishable. These patients classically present with the cholinergic toxidrome. Here, I like to fall back on a little bit of pathophysiology to help me remember what's going on. Basically, there's excess acetylcholine at the muscarinic receptors in the parasympathetic nervous system. So patients can have diarrhea, vomiting, drooling, they might be incontinent of urine, and they're often going to have pinpoint or meiotic pupils. You know, there's a bunch of mnemonics out there to help us remember these symptoms, things like dumbbells and sludge. But really, the most important one is that of the killer bees, standing for bradycardia, bronchorrhea, and bronchoconstriction. It's the cardiorespiratory failure that's going to kill these patients and cause serious morbidity. Keep in mind that when somebody's poisoned with an organophosphorus pesticide, they will also get excess acetylcholine at a few other systems. So one, in the central nervous system, causing maybe seizures and lethargy. Two, at the neuromuscular junctions, that's going to lead to fasciculations, weakness, and even paralysis. And finally, at the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors of our sympathetic nervous system. And here we can get a tachycardia and medriasis, which really offset some of those parasympathetic symptoms I mentioned earlier on and can kind of make your clinical picture a little less classic. To state the obvious, these patients are super sick. They require aggressive supportive care, so oxygen, airway, ventilatory management, IV fluid boluses, and diazepam if they're seizing. Take a moment here to ensure that your team has appropriate personal protective equipment on. And as soon as possible, try to decontaminate the patient. So remove any clothing that's got vomit or maybe the pesticide on it. And when there's a chance, try to have somebody clean their skin with some soap and water. More than anything else, there's a couple of really important antidotes that we need to be giving as part of this resuscitation. The first and definitely the most important one is atropine. 
atropine is going to block the muscarinic receptors in the parasympathetic nervous system, and it's going to lead to improvement of that cholinergic toxidrome. The best way to give it to these patients is by following the dose doubling protocol. So give one to two milligrams of atropine to start and then reassess your patient for persistent signs of toxicity about every five minutes. If they're still toxic, give another dose of atropine at double that initial dose. Continue to double the dose every five minutes until your patient has a clear chest and is more hemodynamically stable. So like their heart rate's about over 80 and they're, for example, not hypotensive. At that point, you're going to start an infusion of 10 to 20% of the total dose of atropine per hour. You know, there's no maximum dose of atropine. Some patients can need well over 100 milligrams, although in a moderately poisoned patient, it's usually around 40 milligrams. It really depends on the dose and the type of pesticide that this patient's been poisoned with, and we actually rarely know that exact info. The second antidote to give is a drug that's going to restore the acetylcholinesterase enzyme. Here in North America, we use pralidoxime, which is also called Tupam. The evidence around giving pralidoxime is a little bit murky, but there's really very little harm, and so it's generally recommended to do so. There's no evidence to guide dosing, so make sure that your poison center is involved if you haven't reached out to them yet. They can help guide you. As a final point, these patients are obviously sick. All that atropine is only going to make a difference in treating the muscarinic symptoms. Patients can still develop respiratory muscle weakness despite not showing any signs of cholinergic toxicity. They need to be admitted to a monitored setting and they need to be watched pretty closely. So in review, poisoning with an organophosphorus pesticide presents most classically with symptoms of the cholinergic toxidrome. Think about your parasympathetic system in overdrive and those killer bees of bronchorrhea, bronchoconstriction, and bradycardia. Remember, though, that they can also be weak, be seizing, and lethargic. Aggressive supportive care and antidote therapy with atropine and pralidoxime are indicated. The way to give atropine is to follow that dose doubling protocol. Start with one to two milligrams and then double the dose every five minutes until your patient's got a clear chest and is hemodynamically stable. At that point, you're going to start an infusion. So huge parasympathetic nervous system activation with these cholinergic pesticides and sarin organophosphates, which of course causes wet stuff. Diarrhea, pee, vomit, salivation, tears pouring down the face, fluid filling the lungs. I jog my memory by thinking of it as the opposite of an anticholinergic toxidrome that we see a lot more of. But the really important deadly effects in the initial resuscitation of these poisons are the killer bees. Bradycardia, bronchoconstriction, and bronchorrhea. Give atropine in big doses, one to two milligrams IV to start, then double the dose every five minutes until they're hemodynamically stable, then start an infusion. And don't forget pralidoxine for your exams. Up next, the mastermind behind the casted course, Aaron Ciel, on the importance of meticulous assessment for rotation in metacarpal fractures and why it's so important. A quick fast-track case, folks. A 24-year-old right-handed male playing football yesterday fell. He's got a sore right hand, and an x-ray is done. You go to pick up the chart. You take a look at the x-rays. You see an oblique mid-shaft fracture of the second metacarpal, and it's an anatomic position in all three views. Then you head over and meet the patient, and you confirm it's an isolated injury. The patient has a closed uh, injury. It's swollen, well-aligned, neurovascularly intact. There's isolated tenderness over the second metacarpal, clinically confirming what's seen on the x-ray. So a pretty quick case, just need to immobilize it and arrange follow-up. 
Sounds pretty simple, but I just want to spend this segment chatting about a subtle, commonly misdiagnosis seen with acute hand injuries and present in this case, and that's malrotation. So here's our single teaching point. When examining patients with suspected metacarpal or phalanx fractures, assess for rotation. It's an absolute must as part of the acute hand exam. Why? A, because it's commonly missed. B, because rotation will never get better unless it's formally addressed. And C, because we are so dependent on our hands, a seemingly trivial amount of rotation can, in some patients, significantly affect function. So as I mentioned, the presence of malrotation is commonly missed. And as with many misdiagnoses, there are a few subtleties that must be appreciated to accurately diagnose and appropriately manage such patients. First, we must remember that looking for rotation in the hand is a clinical assessment, not radiographic. So here's the key. When looking for a rotation clinically, it must be done with the MCPs and PIPs in flexion. The patient's hand is sore. We must gently tease the fingers down into flexion. And what you're looking for is to see all the fingers point towards the scaphoid. You don't want to see any scissoring of fingers. A few reasons for putting the fingers in flexion. Having the fingers in flexion magnifies the degree of rotation. In extension, a five, you know, five degree rotation of a metacarpal fracture would be very difficult to appreciate clinically. But if you put the fingers in flexion, those same five degrees could translate to anywhere from one to one and a half centimeters off axis at the tip of the finger. So putting the fingers in flexion accentuates the rotation. Second, we want to flex the hand because functionally this is how the hand is used frequently. So it's important to check it through that range of motion to see functionally how that injury may affect the patient. And of course, aesthetically, it's quite important if there's a rotational deformity present. Nobody wants to see that. So flexion of the MCPs and PIPs is needed to properly assess for rotational deformity. Now, uh, as a caveat, do realize that as a normal variant, a minor amount of scissoring of the fifth and fourth fingers is seen in maybe 10 to 15% of people. And if it's present as a normal variant, then the majority of time it's bilateral, highlighting the importance of actually checking the patient's opposite hand. Now, if there's asymmetry between the two hands, always ask if there's a previous injury. Sometimes what we're seeing may not be an acute finding and may relate back to a remote injury years ago. Which, of course, if it's a remote injury, that won't be amenable to correction by some closed method for you in the emergency department. So do ask about previous injuries, just in case that rotation was pre-existing. Once you detect acute malrotation, then one needs to derotate it, like straighten it out, uh, until anatomical alignment is restored. And again, that will be confirmed clinically with the fingers in flexion. And of course, that patient needs proper mobilization and close follow-up. Because once you reduce a fracture, it has a tendency to slip back, to go back to where it came from. And failure of good conservative management is one of the indications for operative treatment. So again, we're so dependent on our hands, precise anatomic alignment really is the goal. So what happened with this 24-year-old? So when his fingers went in flexion, there was subtle rotation. There was overlap covering about a quarter of the nail of the neighboring finger. So this rotation was detected in the emergency department. It was derotated, it was corrected, and then it was formally immobilized. The patient was seen within a week by our hand surgeons, came back on day seven, and when they removed the splint, the rotation had recurred. So it failed good conservative treatment. The surgeon booked the patient for surgery the next day. The following day, the patient had a closed reduction done in the OR, and a couple of K-wires were placed to hold it in place, and the patient managed fine. 
But if this malrotation was detected after the fracture healed, say during week two or week three or even later, then a closed reduction may not have been possible because the fracture would have healed. And therefore, he would have needed an osteotomy, meaning an open procedure where you have to break the bone and realign the fracture, significantly more complicated, obviously, than a simple closed reduction, highlighting the importance of detecting this subtle abnormality in the eMERGE department. So the main teaching point, look for rotation in patients with suspected metacarpal and phalanx fractures. The keys to doing this, remember, one, rotation is a clinical diagnosis, not radiographic. Two, it needs to be performed with the fingers gently placed in flexion, and then looking at the nail beds, making sure they're pointing uh, similar to the opposite side. And again, three, again, as I mentioned, always compare to the opposite side. So start looking for rotation. You'll likely be surprised and probably feel good when you pick these cases up because they're often subtle. And not only will it increase your clinical confidence, but most importantly, patients will be optimally managed. If you find this tip on metacarpal fracture rotation changes your practice, please give us a shout out in the comment section in the show notes, because other docs may change their practices seeing the difference this makes to yours. Now, Next up is Andrew Petrosoniak, who we all know as Petro, trauma team leader at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Now, this one really hit home with me because I once missed a significant intra-abdominal injury after a stab wound even after serial exams, bedside ultrasound, blood work, and a CT, you know, these intra-abdominal injuries can sometimes be really tricky to pick up. Let me tell you about a case I had recently. I was just finishing up my evening shift when I got a stack call to our trauma bay to assess a patient who'd been stabbed and walked into the ED. As I enter, I see a young male in his mid-twenties standing next to the stretcher, two nurses helping him get into a gown. He's got a three to four centimeter stab wound on the left side of his belly. He looked quite well, mentating normally, so I knew his BP was perfusing his brain pretty well. We were still getting vitals, but from here I could see that I didn't need to call for blood quite yet. Stab wounds, though, can be quite tricky. Well, it can be the smallest wound on the surface, that might just be the tip of the iceberg, with life-threatening hemorrhage below. Meanwhile, some of those big gaping wounds with tons of bleeding are really just superficial lacerations, and there's no intra-abdominal injury. Before this guy laid down on our stretcher, I asked him to sit up, put his arms in the air, so that I could see his whole torso. Immediately, I knew there's no other wounds that could surprise me later, like that back wound that later causes a tension pneumothorax. Stabbings are pretty common where I work, and I see a few more because of my trauma practice. But for anyone out there who doesn't manage these patients regularly, they can be quite challenging. There's a great new set of guidelines that will be helpful, and I've included them in the show notes. But for now, let's get back to the case. There's really one question that I try to answer quickly when these patients roll in. Do I need to get onto the phone to our friendly neighborhood trauma surgeon and get this guy to the OR, or do I have some time? And when I do this, it can be really boiled down to four key features, all of which which can be done super quick in the initial assessment. Number one, is the patient hemodynamically unstable? In this case, nope. Number two, is there bowel evisceration? Nope, no bowel here. Number three, is there peritonitis on exam? No, he's tender, but definitely no peritonitis. And number four, is the implement or the object still impaled in the patient? 
Here, looks like the dude that stabbed him took the knife along with him. So now what? He doesn't need a stat OR. Well, I'll pay attention to the location of the wound. In this guy, it's in the left upper quadrant. So it's close enough that he could have a diaphragm injury or lung injury. It's also anterior. So I can actually do a local wound exploration. What the heck is this, you ask? Well, it's a technique to figure out if the anterior rectus fascia has been breached. If so, we'll assume there's peritoneal violation. A negative exam, however, is super helpful because the patient can be safely discharged assuming no other injuries. The big issue here is that people don't do this exam properly and don't apply it to the right patients. It's got to be an anterior abdominal stab wound, which this case it is, and we've already established there's no immediate indication for an OR. If this guy's BP is 60 on 40, you don't need a local wound exploration, nope, you just need a surgeon who will bring him to the OR. If the patient was really obese or had multiple stab wounds, then there's really little role for this either. So I go ahead and do the procedure. It's done sterilely with proper lighting, retractors, and sure enough, I see the wound extends through the rectus fascia. Boom. He just bought himself an admission. But that's not it. There's imaging to be done. So I grab the ultrasound and do a fast. I fast all of these patients, even if they're stable, because I like knowing if there's free fluid. And I can convey the info to the surgeon at some point. A negative study doesn't do much good, but I find it's another data point and little downside. His fast was negative. So is his pericardial view. But this is so critical because you have to know if there's pericardial effusion, as this may require a pericardial window in the OR. Finally, I shoot an upright chest x-ray, looking for free air or pneumothorax, especially for wounds in the upper abdomen and epigastric region. So are we done? Admit him to surgery? That's actually pretty reasonable. Serial abdominal exams and blood work. But I typically still CT most of these patients because it gives me more info about the types of injuries and it's helpful when I speak with our surgeons. So this guy did get a CT. I should mention the back and flank wounds can't be managed without imaging. Definitely get a CT in those cases. One of the big take-home points here is that CT scans are far from perfect. In fact, they may miss anywhere from 10 to 60% of injuries. Some of those little knives, they don't cause a ton of tissue disruption, so it's super easy to miss the wound tract on CT. Don't be fooled with a negative CT. If you're not sure there's intra-abdominal injuries, just have them admit it. A nice little trick when you're CTing these patients, staple the wound to mark where it is on the skin surface. That way, you'll be able to identify it from the CT scanner. Another reason I ordered a CT for this guy, wound location. Upper abdominal injuries, especially left-sided ones, can result in diaphragm perf. CT isn't great at identifying these injuries with sensitivities as only as high as 82%, but it definitely can help. So I added on a CT chest. In the end, he ended up having a hole in his colon and he required a laparotomy. No diaphragm injury on CT, and they confirmed that intraoperatively. So here are the three take-home points for the next time you have a patient with abdominal stab wounds. Number one, remember the indications for the OR. Number two, while the CT can be quite helpful to identify signs of intra-abdominal injury, it's really not sufficient. It's got to be coupled with serial abdominal exams over 24 hours to monitor for peritonitis. And number three, don't forget the possibility of thoracic and diaphragm injuries for wounds that are in the upper abdomen. So, small abdominal stab wounds that appear benign at the skin may be just the tip of the iceberg with major injury lurking beneath. 
Remember that CT will miss about 15% of these injuries, and so you need serial abdominal exams over 24 hours, which is the mainstay of management to monitor for peritonitis. And any stab wound above the umbilicus should probably get a CT thorax as well to look for diaphragmatic injuries. All right, next up, Swami on nebulized TXA. We're using TXA for pretty much everything now, so why not nebulize it? What do haloperidol, procainamide, ketamine, and TXA have in common? These are drugs that have been around for a long time, and we're finding more and more reasons to reach for them instead of newer, more expensive drugs. TXA came back into the picture with the CRASH-2 study in 2010. As a reminder, that study showed a 1.5% mortality reduction in major trauma, giving an NNT of about 65. We also found out from that study that the TXA needs to be given within three hours to really get that benefit. Since then, we've seen a lot of work trying to find more places where this drug can be used. In 2017, we had the woman trial looking at TXA in postpartum hemorrhage. They found no reduction in the composite endpoint, but there was decreased death by about 0.5%. There was no reduction in hysterectomy, and there was an increased benefit if given, again, within three hours. There's been mixed evidence in terms of upper GI bleed and the use of TXA. A Cochrane review in 2014 showed a modest benefit, but the studies were flawed. A Best Bets published in 2012 in the Emergency Medicine Journal found inconclusive evidence. Overall, I'm not sure that we should be using it in GI bleed or not. We just don't have ample data to say whether it works or whether there may actually be a harm. Recently, we've seen two new indications for considering use, post-tonsillectomy hemorrhage and hemoptysis. Post-tonsillectomy hemorrhage is an uncommon thing that we see. It usually happens post-op day 5 to 10 as the fibrin clot starts to slough off. It can be impressive, and it's easy to lose a patient's airway in these situations. In addition to that, you can actually see patients who bleed out. When there's massive bleeding, the key is to get direct pressure on the area that's bleeding. That can be more complicated than it sounds depending on the amount of blood that's coming out, but when I've had these cases, I've taken two pieces of gauze, stuck them in the back of the kid's throat, and pressed laterally as hard as I can. Not something that the kid really likes. No matter what you do, you're going to need an ENT there to help you to control this bleeding in the operating room. When the bleeding is less, you can try things like injected epi into the area, but again, this can be hard to figure out exactly where to inject when there is massive bleeding or at least significant bleeding going on. The use of TXA may be something that we can look at. There's some ENT studies looking at prophylactic use of TXA, but they haven't really had good outcomes. There was a Cochrane review that seemed to be going forward, and then it was withdrawn. And so what we're left with are simply case reports. In the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2018, there was a case report published of a three-year-old with significant bleeding. The providers were unable to localize exactly where the bleeding was coming from, and so what they ended up doing was nebulizing 250 milligrams of TXA, and there was control of bleeding in five to seven minutes. That's pretty impressive. So how would I do this if we needed to do it for a post-onselectomy hemorrhage? I would start with nebulizing TXA at the start, 250 to 500 milligrams nebulized. I'd have all my airway equipment at the bedside, double suction set up, and I would have ketamine ready to go. If the TXA stopped the bleeding within a couple of minutes, fantastic, ENT comes in, patient goes to the OR and everything's over. 
if the TXA doesn't control the bleeding or if the patient is becoming unstable or has difficulty protecting their airway, I would use the ketamine to facilitate direct pressure onto the area. Again, I'm going to do this with two thumbs covered in gauze, and then I'm going to soak that gauze in tranexamic acid. Maybe that's going to provide a little bit better control. Ketamine, of course, is going to be tricky here. You can still lose an airway, so you need to be ready to take over that airway immediately if that happens. Now, the other area that we've recently seen TXA come up is in hemoptysis. The buzz recently came out of an article that was in CHESS 2018. This was a randomized, non-blinded, placebo-controlled trial. What they found was that nebulized TXA reduced the time to bleeding cessation and decreased the hospital length of stay. Now, this isn't directly applicable to emergency medicine because I don't really care about the patient who just has a little bit of hemoptysis. That's something that can be managed on the inpatient side. And all of the patients with massive hemoptysis were excluded from this trial. I wouldn't rely on TXA at this point for this indication. My approach here would, one, to be calling somebody who can manage this. That means a palm critical care person, somebody who can bronch the patient. We also want IR and CT surgery on board because the patient may need those resources as well. I'd have all my airway equipment at the bedside, and while I'm setting all of this up, I'd nebulize tranexamic acid 500 milligrams. Again, if that works, fantastic bleeding stop and you look like a pro. If it doesn't, then we're going to move to controlling the airway, and I'm going to refer you back to Scott Weingart's post on this topic for exactly how we should manage those airways. So let's sum it all up. Tranexamic acid is a cheap drug. It's an old drug. It's one that's been around for a while, but it's coming back into vogue. And the two new indications we're seeing are in post-tonsillectomy hemorrhage and hemoptysis. We don't have great data to guide us on management of either of those conditions, but this may be something to try while we're getting our other equipment set up to take over the patient's airway or to move forward with management. All right, well, TXA for everything, right? Well, not exactly, but there is little downside to trying nebulized TXA for your patient who comes in with moderate hemoptysis or your post-tonsillectomy patient who won't stop bleeding. Big RCTs are pending to make this prime time. And last but certainly not least, podcaster extraordinaire, pediatric EM educator and retrieval medicine doc from the UK, now working in Australia, the woman from the fantastic St. Emlyn's podcast, Dr. Natalie May. Now, this quick hit will especially be helpful if you're a nurse or a paramedic or a doc who places peripheral IVs in kids. Here's IV cannulation tips and tricks. It's your evening shift as the senior in charge of the emergency department when one of the junior doctors approaches you for help with pediatric cannulation. The child they're looking after is two years old has been unwell for a few days and needs bloods for investigation of a fever of unknown source. They've already had a couple of attempts at accessing a vein. One seemed to blow immediately and the second refused to bleed back before bruising as soon as the cannula was withdrawn. This kind of situation still makes me a bit anxious, even as someone with a good amount of experience of paediatric emergency medicine, especially because the tension and anxiety seems to just increase with each additional attempt. The nursing staff seem to doubt your abilities. You start to doubt your abilities. The parent holding the child has to cope with consoling them through a procedure that might make them themselves anxious. And of course, the child is pretty often crazy by now. So there's a couple of things that I tend to go through to try to make things a bit smoother. Number one, the urgency. Does this really need to be done right now or can you all go and take a break? And actually, does this need to be done at all? That's something that's really important to know before you go. 
If everyone is stressed out and the temperature in the room has increased by 10 degrees, sometimes taking some time out will help. And in that time, get the parent to encourage the child to drink because well-filled veins are easier to find. In RED, we also stock a freezer full of ice blocks or ice pops or ice lollies, which are a good substitute for the child who isn't keen to drink or has got a sore mouth. You might also need some additional topical analgesia like Emla, Amitop or Angel Cream. Number two, optimization. Just like intubation, it's rare that you have to get the tube in right now. So time spent preparing and optimizing in advance is never time wasted. It's often the secret to success. Consider whether you need extra stuff for distraction, for holding the child's limb, for helping with securing the line afterwards. Consider positioning the child differently, particularly if they're wriggly. Make sure everyone is comfortable so they can hold their positions and they won't need to move at a critical moment. Get all the equipment you might need ready and accessible. That includes steri-strips and dressings, limb boards, flushes and blood bottles. And if you're going to take blood samples, think about how you're going to do this. Will you drip directly into the paediatric bottles or aspirate from the hub of the cannula with a needle and 3ml syringe? I like to have both options available. Number three, use your eyes. Have a really good look at all four limbs before you commit yourself. Avoid light shone directly onto clean skin. You'll get a shine back that makes seeing even harder. Inexperienced paediatric cannulators often stick to what they know in adults, the veins of the antecubital fossa. And this is often one of the trickier places for paediatric cannulation, particularly in babies and toddlers. Knowing that there's a vein running across the proximal half of the fourth metacarpal, have a look at your own hand here, and joining with another vein to run between the fourth and fifth metacarpals is particularly useful in chubby toddlers. The great saphenous vein just anterior to the medial malleolus has been a source of victory for me in the past. And the place I like as a rescue cannula location is the palmar aspect of the wrist. You'll usually find at least one very superficial but very straight tiny vein there. You can usually only get a 24 gauge line in these veins, but it's often better than nothing. Number four, use better eyes. Ultrasound can be helpful if you can't see anything at all. I find that actually adding ultrasound into an already wriggly child makes life a bit harder, but it can be useful to confirm that the veins are where you think they are. Just be gentle with the probe pressure. For older kids, you can use it exactly as you would for a difficult to cannulate adult. Number five, go low, go slow, be patient. Use an angle of insertion that's really flat along the skin and advance slowly. Flow rates through smaller cannulae are slow, so it may take an extra half second for you to see the flashback in the cannula barrel. And by that time, if you're still advancing, you may be out of the other side of the vein. Going slowly allows you that extra responsiveness. Pre-flushing the cannula itself with saline is a tip from some paediatric anaesthetists I know. It only works with non-safety cannulae because you need to be able to put the needle back in afterwards, but it does make the flashback a little easier to see. And number six, secure it as though your life depends on it. This usually means with steri-strips first, then checking it still flushes, and then applying a dressing such as tegaderm with a limb immobilization board or two, and then some bandaging. There's some really great advice at Don't Forget the Bubbles at the Songs or Stories blog and at the Royal Children's Hospital Melbourne site around paediatric cannulation. And if you're the person asking someone else to help you out after unsuccessful attempts, stick around to see what they're doing differently. You might learn something. Right, here's a quick review of the quick hits. So your priorities in the sick organophosphate poison patient are the killer bees and high-dose atropine. For metacarpal fractures, check for rotation every metacarpal fracture you see. What about abdominal stab wounds? They can be 
just the tip of the iceberg. Not even CT is perfect, so most need observation for 24 hours. If you got a patient with moderate hemoptysis or a post-tonsillectomy bleed, try nebulized TXA. There's really little downside. For pediatric IV cannulation, decide on the necessity and urgency. Ask yourself if the IV needs to be placed now or can you delay while the child drinks or sucks on a popsicle and settles down. Optimize everything in advance. Consider topical analgesia like EMLA. Get all your equipment, assess all limbs before committing to one location, and gather your staff that you'll need. Have a good look with your eyes and POCUS. The back of the hand is likely to have a higher success rate than the antecubital fossa in the pediatric population. Remember, go low, go slow, and finally, secure the IV as if your life depends on it. Next time on the EM Cases EM Quick Hits podcast, we'll have two special guests, David Yearlink on drug interactions and Howard Ovens on the best way to handle violence in your ED. And by the way, there's only a few spots left for the EM Cases course on June 24th in Toronto, so act fast. And by the time you listen to this podcast, the EM Cases Quiz Vault will finally be up and running on the EM Cases website. Just sign up and you can customize your own quiz. Would love to hear your feedback on that. So until next time, together, we're smarter.